Join me now for the scripture reading. It comes from Psalm chapter 23. I'll be reading from verses 1 through 6 as a conclusion to our series on Psalm 23, a song of the week. It's a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in one. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is God's word. You know, Psalm 23 Psalm 23 is Hebrew poetry. It's a song. And it's written in a way that each line is followed by a line that clarifies that previous line through a series of parallels or ironies or word pairs or syntax throughout the entire song, throughout the entire poem, all to express the author's main points. And David, who's the author, he's reflecting on his life And as we close out this series, he leaves us with three conclusions that when you apply it, it's going to enable us to endure any circumstance, any valley, any darkness, any danger in our lives. Three conclusions, and you see them all in verse 6, and we're going to go backwards. There's a reason for that. We're going to go backwards. One, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That speaks to a hopeful journey. Two, Surely goodness, sorry, two, you will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the pursuing presence of God. And lastly, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. That's the lasting promise of God. A hopeful journey, the pursuing presence, and a lasting promise. We share that one last because everything hinges on that line. And this marks the the end of an amazing psalm, this amazing psalm. Uh, It's God's word to teach us, to help us to endure isolation, aloneness, darkness, our sinfulness, any current circumstance that you are facing, especially during this difficult and pivotal time in our lives. We're never going to forget it. First, uh, the hopeful journey. The author, David, he says this. He says, the shepherd takes me on this journey, green pastures, quiet waters, paths of righteousness, even these dark valleys. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for David's life, but it's really a metaphor for our life experiences. And David, what he's saying is, I've experienced an abundance of pasture. I've experienced the darkness of the valley. I've experienced the presence of the enemy. And yet, still, when I look back, he says, You lead me. You guide me. You restore me. You comfort me. You are with me. You prepare a table before me. You anoint my head with oil. No matter where you've been, no matter where David's been, God's presence was with him. And that means we are never alone. Good or bad, we are never alone. And when you see that, that's going to give us hope. No matter the darkness, that's going to give us hope. It's going to give us hope no matter the enemy. We're never alone. 
Because what that means is that there's meaning in our valley. There's meaning to our valley. There's a destination, an end destination to our valley. It's an actual physical place, a destination. The psalmist says, God prepares this table, this feast before me. And he anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. There's this victory. There's this honor. There's this intimacy that I'm endowed with. And I have that already. I already have that right now. I have that even in the valley. God is with you. But that is just a foretaste of the intimacy that we will have with God. Because verse 6 says what? I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's what he says. Here the psalmist shifts from what he already has and points to a greater reality that hasn't yet arrived. Verse 6, David is referring to a journey home. He's referring to the ultimate destination of his life. And what he's saying is this reality is just as real. If anything, it's more real than our present reality. It's more real than our visible reality. But David is saying this is, is real for him. He's, he's not just tasting it. He's experiencing it now. Every good thing that the shepherd provides is just a foretaste. He's experiencing it now, but it's just a foretaste leading up to the ultimate reality. What does that mean? Heaven isn't just a, some spiritual state of mind. We're not just going to be some spiritual, ethereal beings in heaven. We're going to have actual bodies. It's not just something spiritual. God prepares his table in verse 5. The cup overflows. You know what that means? There's this intimacy. We already have that. But in verse 6, he says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord. There is an ultimate feast that he's looking to. There's an ultimate rest, an ultimate peace, an ultimate pasture, an ultimate righteousness, an ultimate intimacy. In Revelation chapter 21, you have the author. He has this vision of heaven. And he starts to rattle off all these things he sees in chapter 21. He sees gold. He sees jasper, sapphire, emeralds, pearls, amethyst. What is he saying? He's saying heaven is like earth, except it's only beautified and magnified and intensified to a degree that's unimaginable, unfathomable. And that renders that the best of what we have here, the best of what we've experienced on earth, is a really, it's really just a foretaste of what we'll see in heaven. On one hand, it's, it's like earth. And yet, earth is a mere foretaste of what we'll experience in heaven. And David's saying, my relationship with God is so good and it's so powerful. It, doesn't, it gives me courage in the darkest moments because I sense his presence. I sense his victory. I sense his honor. I sense his intimacy. But what I already have in the present will give birth to an even greater reality in the ultimate fullness that I will experience in heaven. In its greatest fullness, I will experience it in heaven. And as David reflects on it, it's so good to him, he bursts into song. He starts to sing. You see, on one hand, if you just hinge on what you have right now, and you don't think about the ultimate reality, if you hinge on just what you have right now, your present blessings, the present wealth, the present provision, your present moments of peace, and you don't trust, you don't look to the ultimate provision of peace, you're not going to be able to endure the hard times. You're not going to have hope. Viktor Frankl, he's a psychiatrist that survived the Holocaust. He's been through four concentration camps. 
And he shares about that experience in a very famous book, probably his most famous book, Man's Search for Meaning. And he says this. One one thing that he observed was that people who thought that they would be rescued quickly when they all arrived at the concentration camp, many people thought, hey, this war is going to be over very quickly. We're going to be rescued. And when that day, when that time would come, that they were expecting, and it came without rescue, they would quickly lose the will to endure, and they would die. They would die a lot sooner. But people who clung to the hope of rescue, not today, but they looked to a time when it would happen. They would find some meaning in the future. They knew, they absolutely knew they would be rescued, but they knew that it may not come right away. They would endure because they would have hope. Now, you take a look at your salary or your health or your wealth or your looks. You take a look at your figure or your relationship to your spouse or to your children or to your boss or to your parents or to your friends, your connections, your network. You place your hope in any one of these things today. This is what's going to rescue me, you say. I mean, we don't say it, but that's what we would believe. That's not going to give you an enduring hope. That's not going to give you the hope that you need to get through life. Because all those things are broken, and they will all at some point disappoint you, they will all at some point fail you, and they will all at some point, they're designed to go away. But David places his hope. David looks to the ultimate destination. All those things that he enjoyed on earth were a mere foretaste of the ultimate reality that he knew would come. That's what's waiting for him, that reality. And what happens is everything good that he would experience Every good place that he's been to only sharpened his taste for that ultimate reality. And he says, and he sings, all these things are good. All these provisions are good. All the places that God has led me, even through the valley, it's been good. But I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, on the other hand, if you only look to the end and the ultimate destination, but you don't see what's already been given to you, As a resource, your hope will be useless. It won't look real. It won't be real. You're just going to gloss over your pain. You're going to gloss over your losses. You're going to gloss over your sinfulness. You're going to be callous even to your sinfulness. You're going to gloss over your suffering. And so you're never going to get into those things. You're never going to be able to really dive deeper into those things, the deep-rooted sins, the, the deepest aspects of our suffering, to look to the hope and to find the hope that we need. And we're going to say, oh, everything's good all the time. A Christian is real about suffering. A Christian knows how to cry through suffering and pain and sin. A Christian is going to look at their sin and not just say, oh yeah, well, I know God's forgiven me. A Christian is going to mourn that sin. Blessed are those who mourn. Right? That's what Jesus said. A Christian is going to mourn for their own sin. A Christian is going to mourn at their losses. But the mourning comes to an end. They will find comfort. They will be healed. A Christian knows that their crying or their mourning or their pain will come to an end. And a Christian, because he sees the end, he sees the victory and the honor and the intimacy, the glory that he will experience in that ultimate reality, a Christian will never be ruined by that suffering. Because they know the end, a Christian knows suffering will come to an end, that evil will come to an end, and so they will have courage and they will have poise and they will have power. There's hope through the journey. Now, 
The second point is the pursuing presence of God. The psalmist says, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. Now, when you're in the valley, it's dark. And in darkness, you can't see. You can't see one step in front of you. It's uncertain. It's a wilderness. Life is uncertain. David says, I trust my shepherd. It's like, although I am blind and I can't tell what's good and bad, I can't tell where I'll get hurt, where I step and it'll be safe, or where I'll step and it'll get hurt. But my shepherd will lead me and he will guide me. And if I hurt myself, he will restore me. And he will lead me or guide me in these paths. That's what he says. There's certainty. Why? Verse 6, David says, surely goodness and love will follow me. Surely goodness and love will follow me. That's what he says. What is he sure of? He's sure of the goodness and the love of God. And he says, no matter my darkness, no matter my evil, no matter the enemies in my presence, no matter the valley, I am certain that God's goodness and love will follow me. Now, the actual word in Hebrew for the word follow is not, you know, follow me as in, you know, following is like what your little brother or little sister does to annoy the big brother or the big sister. The big brother is drawing something on a sketch pad. The little brother is going to follow, maybe even imitate. The big brother is going to watch TV or cartoons. The little brother is going to watch the same shows, the same cartoons. The big brother collects baseball cards. The little brother collects baseball cards. The big brother rides a bike. The little brother rides a bike. That's following. You get that? That's not what the psalmist is saying here. God's not just following us around. In Exodus chapter 14, Moses is leading God's people out of slavery, out of Egypt. And they're arriving at the Red Sea. Meanwhile, in Egypt... The Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has a change of heart. So what does he do? He sends all his horses, all his chariots, all his horsemen, all his troops, and they follow the Israelites. The actual word is they pursue, chase down to overtake and run over. In other words, there's this relentless pursuit. They are locked in. They are focused. Nothing's going to stop them. They are charging hard ahead until they grab and overtake. That's what David is saying. If you're in the darkness, there is incredible relief in knowing that God is relentlessly finding you. And he's got eyes. If you are in danger, in peril, there is great hope in knowing that God is relentlessly chasing and pursuing you. If you are in the valley, if you are in sin, surely goodness and love is relentlessly pursuing me to run me over with your grace. Why is that important? A Christian is not just somebody who feels God's presence during worship. A Christian isn't somebody who just feels good after they pray. A Christian isn't someone who just comes to worship and says, yeah, and raises their arms and, and, and their hands. They feel good in that moment. A Christian isn't someone who just experiences some movement during praise or movement during, during the sermon. A Christian isn't someone who just gives or serves when they feel good about it. A Christian isn't someone who trusts Jesus when things are going well. A Christian is someone who's in the valley, in the darkness, and they do not fear. They have courage. They have poise. 
A Christian is someone, when they're in sin, they know that God is right behind them, relentlessly pursuing them to protect them. He is their shepherd. He's not gonna, he will let the 99 go to chase after that one. You cannot run away. So why run away? Why run away to danger? A Christian is someone who knows that when they are guilty, when they're in guilt, God is relentlessly pursuing to overwhelm them with grace and reminders of grace so that you won't be relieved of your guilt or your shame. A Christian knows that when they're living for themselves and only for themselves, God is relentlessly in pursuit and he wants all of you. He doesn't just want your offering. He doesn't want your hour of worship. That's not what he wants. He doesn't want that one decision that you made at a retreat. A Christian is somebody, when they're afraid, or when they're in sorrow, when they're in despair, when they feel isolated, when they're in pain or loss, when they're suffering, a Christian is someone who knows that our God will never let them go. He is always present and he's shaping you through every suffering, bringing good, your good, for his glory through every tear that is cried. A Christian knows that God is in it with them. He's in it with them, hounding you to overtake you and to overwhelm you, what? With his force to subvert you, to enslave you? No, with his goodness and love. With his love. That means God is pursuing you with his faithfulness. That is a friend you want. That is the friend you're looking for. That is the friend you need. He's pursuing you with his faithfulness every time you cheat on him. He's, he is pursuing you with his forgiveness every time you betray him. He is pursuing you with healing every time you wander away from him and get hurt. He's pursuing you with love every time you reject him. Preach that to yourself anytime you are in doubt. Preach that to yourself the next time you question God and where he is. Preach that to yourself the next time you are hurting or you're in pain. He will never leave you alone. Practice God's presence everywhere because you know he is everywhere. You know what that means? If you want peace, if you want to experience peace, if you want to experience joy, stop trying to define it on your own, on your own terms. Stop trying to get it on your own. That's what takes you into the valley. That's what makes, leads us to wandering. That means you have to be less skeptical of God and more skeptical of yourself. That's what that means. That means that you have to trust God's word. You have to trust the Lord more. You have to trust yourself less. That means, what does that mean? That means you got to listen to God's words more. You got to listen to his commands more. That means that you got to find friends who are never going to let you go. And they're going to say the hard things and never let you go. They're going to pursue you. They're going to hound you. If your friends don't say hard things, right? If your friends don't say hard things, well, first of all, if they just say hard things because... Uh, you annoy them, they're not good friends. But if they say the hard things, or they're not going to say the hard things because um, even though they know it's going to ruin you if you don't listen, because they're afraid it's going to hurt their friendship, that's not a relentless pursuit, is it? The relentless pursuit of God in the context of community are friends who are going to pursue you and hound you because they are ambassadors for Christ. And they are pursuing you and hounding you knowing that where you are wandering is going to ruin you, even if it hurts your friendship with them. That's a good friend. That's community. That's a friendship that's going to pursue you. That's a friendship that's going to save you. 
It's why David sings because when he, I mean, when he was in battle, when he was at war, when he was in sin, when he was alone, when he was suffering, I mean, he lost sons. God pursued him. God forgave him. God healed him. God empowered him. God shaped him. God blessed him. The pursuing presence of God. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We have a hopeful journey. The pursuing presence of God. And lastly, we have a lasting promise. What is that promise? The first part of verse uh, the verse says this, surely goodness and love will follow me. That's what's going to follow him. The rest of the verse really hinges on that part. What is he saying? The word love in Hebrew, surely goodness and love, is, the word, is a Hebrew word, hesed. It's, a, it's also translated as mercy. It's, uh, the NIV translates as goodness and love. Uh, it's because there's no real English translation for the word. But the word really means a faithfulness, a mercy, a loyalty, and a love that's bound by a covenant. So according to Haddon Robinson, who is the great uh, Baptist preacher and professor from Gordon-Conwell, he says, it's a love that rises to the highest pitch of devotion. David, David, David says this. He says, your unfailing, undying love for me is why you pursue me. You will never let me go. It's, it's why I have access to you. It's why I can dwell in your presence. It's not because of anything he did. It's not because of anything he earned. It's by God's sheer grace, his promise, his covenant, the Lord, you know what a covenant means? The Lord has bound his life and his victory and his joys in you. That's what a covenant is. And if you know God's heart for you and how he's bound his life and his victories and his joy in you, then you will bind your life and your victories and your joys in him. Everything else, how you walk your journey hinges on that promise. And it is a promise. David realizes, surely goodness and love will follow me. He is confident in this. How is he so confident? How can you be confident? How can it become a certainty for you? On the cross, Jesus Christ was alone. Jesus Christ was isolated, and he's suffering, and he's bleeding. There's clearly, I mean, there's apparently no victory here. Jesus Christ is fighting the ultimate battle against sin and evil and death. And what does he do? He surrenders himself to sin and evil and death, and so he dies. And he cries out and says, my God, my God, even you have forsaken me. Your goodness and your love have abandoned me. I am facing the certainty of your wrath. I am facing the certainty of death for the punishment of our people's sins, my people's sins. That's my certainty. That's what I'm sure of. But do you know, he was reciting Psalm 22. He was singing. David was singing this. Can, look at the confidence of Jesus. Look at the poise and the courage, the, the courage of Jesus. His friends have betrayed him. His enemies have surrounded him. Jesus Christ lost the honor and the intimacy of God. And instead, he received the wrath of God. There was no mercy before him. There was no glory that he was looking to. So what gave him hope? What gave him enough hope, so much hope, that he would sing? What gave him the joy what gave him the courage to trust God, even though God has forsaken him? Hebrews chapter 12 says this. 
let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, that's what he was looking to, the joy that he was looking to while he was on the cross that enabled him to endure the cross, scorning its shame. What was that joy that kept Jesus going? What enabled Jesus to trust God and to endure the deepest pain of the cross, the abandonment and betrayal of his friends, the abandonment of God? What gave him that joy? You were that joy. Jesus Christ remained faithful in his promise, in his covenant love, towards his father because he trusted the promise of God's faithfulness and promise for you. He was looking to redeemed people. He was looking at a day when he would dwell in the house of the Lord and see his people there. That's what he saw. He trusted it. It was a promise. Look at Jesus's relentless love and pursuit he spanned out of eternity, out of infinite glory, into time to go through every darkness and danger for you. He saw the end of sin and the end of evil and the end of darkness. In fact, in Revelation 21, the author says, the Lord was, is the light. There's no more night. There's no more darkness in that ultimate reality because the Lord is its lamp. The Lord's glory is his lamp. And so he saw the end of sin, the end of evil, the end of darkness through his deepest valley, even when God was absent. Jesus Christ lost the Father so that we would have the Father. Jesus Christ lost the love of the Father so we would have the love of the Father. Jesus Christ lost the presence of the Father so that we would have the presence of the Father. And that would give us power to shape us. If you don't trust that, you're going to wander in the wilderness the way the Israelites wandered in the desert, constantly complaining, meandering, blaming God, fighting one another. But if you trust in the gospel, you will see that God has bound up his own life and victories and joy in you. And through the cross, broke the power of sin and death for you. He saved you. Then you will bind up your life and your victories and your joy in him. And that will help you to endure and live life with courage and poise because of Christ's victory in you. What a beautiful resource is Psalm chapter 23. What an amazing help is Psalm 23 when we are in the darkness, when we are hurting, when we feel lost. Turn to the promise of God. Turn to the unfailing love of God. Turn to the blessing of God in Jesus, our great and eternal shepherd, the one who saves and redeems our souls and leads us to our ultimate destination in his presence. Let's pray together.